Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the burning bush. Just as Genesis chapter 3 was foundational because it recorded the fall of man and woman and the introduction of sin into the world, so Exodus chapter 3 is foundational because it records the call of Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. It also introduces us to the covenant name of God, YHWH, sometimes translated Yahweh, Jehovah, or the Lord, in all caps. The whole Bible is a progressive revelation, with truth shining clearest in the New Testament. Think of it as a dimmer switch that is slowly turned up to reveal more about God and his plan for the world. Moses has now been in Midian for 40 years. He is 80 years old. He has been shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, who was a priest. This life was far removed from his privileged life in the palace of Pharaoh in his first 40 years. He no doubt thought he was done with Egypt. After all, he was a wanted man. He led the flock across the wilderness to Mount Horeb, called the Mountain of God. It is so named because of what would later take place there. This is the name it was known as when it was written. It's also called Mount Sinai. This suggests that Moses wrote the book after the law was given. We're told the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Later we're told this is God. So we see this angel of the Lord is identified with God, yet distinct from God. It's believed this is another example of a theophany, or a pre-existent appearance of Christ. But regardless, God steps into time and space to interact with his creatures. This bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up, clearly a supernatural occurrence. This strange sight was curious, so Moses went over to investigate. As he approaches, God calls to him by name from within the bush. What was it like to hear the voice of God? Verses 4 through 10, the summons. God stops him. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This was a sign of reverence. He could not just saunter or rush into God's presence. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. This was a proper response of reverent fear in the presence of God. Jesus referred to this passage to show that people live on after they die and will be resurrected because this is spoken in present tense. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And Luke writes that Jesus said, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This also shows us that Jesus believed the first five books were authored by Moses, and this was a true account, not an allegory. Then God speaks comfort to Moses and the children of Israel. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. He is well aware of their desperate situation. God is not indifferent to their plight. Moses would later remind them of this time. 
Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. This is an example of agape love. That is the kind of love that sees a problem and then does something about it. Here, God is determined to be personally involved, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. He rescues from the Egyptians to bring them to a new land. He describes the new land as good and spacious and flowing with milk and honey. This speaks of abundance. He specifically names the people groups whose land they will dispossess. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. He repeats that he has heard and seen what was happening to his people. This relates to his omniscience. So he takes action through means of a deliverer. He sends Moses. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This official summons makes Moses both a deliverer of the Israelites and an ambassador to Pharaoh. Verses 11 and 12, the first objection and God's promise. But Moses, who had been so willing to be a savior 40 years earlier, is now meek, humble, and afraid. He will offer five protestations. The first relates to his person. He feels inadequate to the task. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He had been away from the courts of Egypt for 40 years. He was now just a shepherd in Midian. But God chose this fugitive sheep herder as his man. God doesn't try to build up Moses' self-esteem. He tells him what will make the difference, his presence. I will be with you. This promise was also given to the patriarchs and will later be given to Joshua. What more could he need? He also gives him a sign that will surely be fulfilled. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The mission's success was guaranteed. They would not just be saved from slavery, but for the purpose of true worship. This was part of the promise made to Abraham when he was told his descendants would be slaves. God spoke to him in this way, For four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Acts 7, 6 and 7 God rightly expects his creatures to worship him. Verse 13 to 15 The second objection, the covenant name. While one could argue that the first objection may have been reasonable, now Moses crosses the line and presents unreasonable doubts. He wonders if they will demand validation that God really spoke to him. 
Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? But God patiently replies, giving Moses his covenant name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This name refers to God's self-existence and eternality. He is independent of his creation and not dependent on anything else to exist. He doesn't need our help. He is limitless. Later, God would remind Moses of this change. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself truly known to them. He adds, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This reference back to the patriarchs would reinforce that God is unchanged and unchangeable. He is the same one who interacted with their ancestors, and he promises to do the same for their descendants. Verses 16 and 17, Message to the Israelites. Yet it is this God, this self-existent, majestic being who enters into history, who interacts with his people and acts on their behalf. God tells Moses the message he is to bring to the elders of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. These are similar words of comfort and promise. Verses 18 through 20, message to Pharaoh, his response, and God's response. God promises success. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then together they are to go to Pharaoh. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. In saying it's a three-day journey, God was not being disingenuous because they were actually leaving permanently. This was the language of diplomacy of the times. It was progressive. It would also reveal Pharaoh's intransigence. He wouldn't let them go under any circumstances. This message will meet with a different response, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God knows all outcomes because he is omniscient. Verses 21 and 22, promise of riches from Egyptians. Then God prophesies that they will not only leave slavery in Egypt behind, but they will leave with riches courtesy of their captors. This will be a fulfillment of God's earlier promise to Abraham, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Genesis 15:14. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, 
which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Imagine, the Egyptians will not only be happy to see them leave, but they will give them great riches. This is fulfilled in Exodus 11, 2 and 3, and chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Stephen summarizes this event in Acts 7, 30-34. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads do we find in this chapter? Both had their public ministry during the last part of their lives. Both were shepherds or leaders of the people of Israel. If God doesn't act on behalf of his people, they will remain in slavery because their captor is not willing to release them. Just as God saw their desperate situation and acted to redeem them from slavery by sending a deliverer, so he saw our desperate situation because of his love he sent his son to redeem us. Keep listening for Exodus chapter 4. May God bless the study of his word.